Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 89, Lords of the Desert. Today, we continue our look at some out-of-the-way places and people. This time, it's a journey to the Egyptian frontier, the Wild East, in order to meet the men who protected the realm and guarded the borders. It's a ride into the Egyptian wilderness with its lone rangers. Yeehaw! Today's episode is brought to you by Ruth Moore and Anton Scratt. Ruth, Anton, thank you for your support. May Seth, Lord of the Deserts, guard your lands and bring destruction on your enemies. One last thing. Today's episode takes place in a very specific geographical area. To keep ourselves oriented, I have provided a map on the podcast website. Link in the episode description. A hot sun beat down on a yellow land, and whistling wind blew across sand dunes. Wisps of grit flew through the air, small particles that stung the faces of men, men who trudged laboriously through the desert. The horizon ahead and behind was a brown smudge. Overhead, a cloudless sky gave no relief from unrelenting heat. This was the land of the Sinai Peninsula, and it was merciless to its travellers. The year was 1414 BCE. It was regnal year 4 under the majesty of Menkeperu-Re, Tutmos IV. It was a peaceful time to be an Egyptian. The land was quiet, the territories of the empire were secure against invasion. Powerful enemies were now allied friends. It seemed like the whole world was at peace. But even so, the frontiers of Egypt demanded attention and the great pharaoh had plans for the Sinai Peninsula. As a result, a weary caravan of soldiers and officials found themselves trudging the hot, dusty roads of the eastern desert. The troop of soldiers was a stalwart bunch. They had come from the northern edge of Sinai, where the desert meets the Nile Delta. There, at a mighty fortress called Charu, warriors of the Egyptian army kept watch over the desert roads. They inspected traders, questioned migrants, and retaliated against hostile Bedouin raiders, who periodically came out of the sands to steal cattle or worse. It was a rough life, but a predictable one. Now, the men were travelling far from home. The caravan was making its way south. It had left Charu, heading down towards the Red Sea. A laborious journey, but the men endured it. They had their orders, and it was their duty to obey. 
This went double for the men in the caravan who were not soldiers. You see, the fortress of Charu had a reputation. A reputation for being the place where convicted criminals were exiled in order to serve the pharaoh far away from decent society. These criminals, working on the chain gang as it were, accompanied the military expedition as well. All hands were necessary where they were going. The Sinai was harsh, and the work at the end would be even harsher. Morale among these convicts and their guardian soldiers was probably not great. But if there was any grumbling, it would have been swiftly quelled by the man who led this motley crew. At the head of the troops and convicts, a royal official led the way. His name was Nebi, and he was a servant of Pharaoh. Officially a troop commander and a mayor, Nebi, whose name means Lord, held military authority at Charu. Out here in the Sinai, he came in his guise as one of Pharaoh's personal agents. Nebi held the rare and august title of Weputi Nesut, a.k.a. Messenger of the King. The Weputi Nesut represented Tutmos IV in faraway places. He was part messenger, perhaps even diplomat, and part instrument of Pharaoh's will. This is conveyed through the word Weputi, which has its root in the word Wep, or to open. So a Weputi might be thought of as someone who opened the ways for the pharaoh to act. Nebi was the king's man on the ground, an instrument of pharaoh's will. He demonstrated this in the Sinai. When Nebi and company arrived in the peninsula, they came to a region that was desolate, rocky, and valuable. Sinai was mining country, a land that produced valuable metals and minerals for Egypt. The copper mines here supplied much of the ore for making tools like chisels or knives. Of course, the troops themselves relied on Sinai copper for many of their weapon blades. So Nebi and his men were visiting the factory, so to speak, going out to the place where their own livelihood was partially supplied. This was an important mission. It seems they took it seriously. Arriving at the mines, Nebi and company went about procuring their supplies. The captives were immediately put to work in the hills, but the soldiers probably were too. The average Egyptian soldier was, at the best of times, a jack of many trades. Armed with swords, but also with chisels, they went to work in the mines alongside the convicts. Why? Well, it was really quite simple. The expedition hadn't come out to Sinai with a vague instruction to collect copper. It had almost certainly come with a specific quota. Records from earlier times, like the Middle Kingdom, suggest that expeditions out to the Sinai Peninsula were sent with a specific quantity of ore in mind. The officials would be given a quota to fill, and only when that requirement was obtained would the group as a whole be allowed to return. That was the practice a few centuries before. It's entirely possible that this was still the norm in the New Kingdom. If so, well, these men probably had a hell of a time. Remarkably, we know a lot about it. The ancients left bits and pieces of their processes behind, and archaeological surveys, of which there are sadly just a few, have found the remains of the ancient mines. Add to this the writings of some commentators, and we have an idea of what this whole practice looked like. Long story short, mining work in the Sinai was brutal. 
The land was a furnace, and the mountains were supposedly so hot that they, quote, branded the skin. In other words, the landscape turned an already brown and black people even more brown and black. Hardly the stuff of legends, but this is the reality of ancient life. The captives and the soldiers worked hard in horrible conditions. They hammered and chiseled, digging away at rich seams. In time, with a little luck, they obtained the quotas that were expected. Copper has to be extracted from the earth around it. Usually, for every hundred tons of rock, only five tons are actual copper. So there was a lot of punishing work to do, even after the rock itself was dug out. With the more promising pieces laid out on the ground, Nebi, or his foreman, would direct the men to smash the pieces with hammers. They gathered around chunks of rock, and to the rhythmic clapping of an overseer, they pounded away at the rocks. With every blow, bits and pieces of earth revealed a tiny bit more of the copper that they sought. Now we're not talking large sledgehammers here, we're talking small one-handed mallets, wooden pieces, or even just other rocks. The miners and soldiers of ancient Egypt were not exactly equipped with modern technology, so this was really rough work, even at the best of times. The fact that they accomplished anything is a testament to their perseverance. Having mined and hammered the ore, the workers were now ready to separate the copper itself out from the soil. The rocks had been pounded and crushed as much as a hammer could achieve. Now, the Egyptians went to work with their grinders. Apparently, they placed the small chunks of rock onto flat surfaces and began to grind away with heavy stones. This was slow, back-breaking work, just for a change, and it probably took many hours. But eventually, the rocks and ore had become something like a fine powder. Now came the final steps. The miners took their smooth, flat surfaces, still covered with the powdery ore, and lifted them up ever so slightly. They put these grindstones on an angle, and then they began to pour water over it, gently. They poured water so that the loose earth, which had been pulverized and pounded by their stones, would dissolve and wash away, leaving the precious copper behind on its own. Slowly, gently, they washed the copper ore free of its shackles. When they were done, wet grindstones glittered with the sparkles of metal. The work was almost over. With the copper ore ready, Nebi's men began to smelt. We know that they did this on site, rather than taking the dust back to Egypt. Archaeologists working in Sinai have found the detritus of this work, metal crucibles for holding the ore over the fire. They have also found slag heaps from the crushing and sieving. Graffiti and inscriptions of the expeditions testify to the horrendous difficulty of all of this. The Egyptians, soldiers, miners, and convict labourers, have left a small but rich little testimony of their work in this part of the world. So Nebi and his men came out to Sinai, and over the course of many weeks of terrible labour, gradually filled their quota. Eventually, the work was complete. The soldiers could rest, the convicts could, presumably, go back to working as servants and porters for the free men. The officers could satisfy themselves with a job well done. Before they left, Nebi and company composed a record of their visit to the mining country. This took the form of a rough hieroglyphic inscription carved on the walls of Sinai's cliffs. 
Now, they weren't the best artisans, so the work is closer to a scribble than an ornate official-looking piece, but still, it is informative. The inscription of Nebi shows the officials standing just behind the much larger figure of King Tutmose IV. Even though Pharaoh was back at home, this was his expedition, and deference had to be paid to his majesty. So the Pharaoh stands tall, the servant stands small. Above the king, rough and scratchy hieroglyphs proclaim loudly, The young god Menkeperu Rey, son of Rey, Tutmos, whose cars appear in splendour, one given life eternally. End quote. That is a typical royal inscription. It tells us nothing historically. Fortunately, Nebi added a second set of hieroglyphs above himself. Quote, the royal messenger in all foreign lands, the steward of the harem belonging to the royal wife, the mayor of Charu, child of the nursery, Nebi. Year four of the majesty of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Menkeperure. End quote. Again, it doesn't seem to tell us much, but there is a little nugget of gold among all that ore. Can you guess what it is? Surprisingly, Nebi, the troop commander, the leader of expeditions out to Sinai, was also an honorary steward in the royal harem. Theoretically, he had access to the secluded royal palace, which we explored in episode 88. This means that he was, however distantly, connected with the great and powerful woman of the day, namely Tia, the queen mother, and later Iaret, Tutmose IV's sister-slash-wife. Iaret, in particular, would be a very interesting connection, as this queen visited Sinai herself, just a few years after Nebi's expedition. With their work complete, Nebi and company now loaded up their donkeys with copper, and probably some turquoise as well. The Sinai is a good source of turquoise, and Egyptians had been coming here for centuries to source it. Heavy panniers saddled the poor donkeys, who now had to trudge laboriously back to the Nile Valley. Fortunately, they were probably quite placid. Donkeys are good-natured and gentle animals most of the time, their days in the hot sun were an unfortunate burden. But all things must be endured by all creatures in the name of the pharaoh. The donkey's masters were no better. Nebi, the soldiers, and the convicts loaded up and left the mining country. They headed northward along the desert trails, making their way up the Red Sea coast and towards the desert itself. Then, with one last look back, they headed out into the yellow and blue, and made their way towards home. A home that survives today, and is a remarkable place to explore. Let's visit. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. 
Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. In late 1414 BCE, the Egyptian expedition to Sinai was returning home. Behind them, the desert was hot and dry. Ahead of them, the Nile Delta was hot and green. It was lush and fertile. More importantly, it was home. The expedition was returning to a place called Charu, which is also known by the name Sile or Tel Hebuah. We'll call it Charu, the ancient Egyptian name. It is an often forgotten place, but this, I think, is a mistake. Charu is amazing. Charu has been around since approximately 1600 BCE. It was definitely there during the time of the Hyksos, and may actually have been commissioned by them. We're not sure. Excavations are still happening, even in 2017. It's going to be many years before the definitive publication of Charu is released, but for now, we can still say a few things. Charu sat at the very eastern edge of the Nile Delta, just where the greenery meets the desert. It was a town divided into two parts. On one side, a mighty fortress covered a huge area. This fortress had barracks for troops, stables for horses and chariots, armories, granaries for supplies, and office buildings for the scribes who managed day-to-day administration. This area was immense, covering a huge space of land. Around it, mighty walls protected the area, and I mean mighty. The fortifications at Charu are huge, several meters tall and twice that in thickness. If you were hoping to break through the fortress, forget it. Only the most sophisticated siege weaponry could have done it, and things like catapults had not yet been invented. Around 1400 BCE, Charu was probably the pinnacle of ancient fortifications. Nebi and his men lived in a very safe space. Nebi's life in Charu was probably quite quiet, 90% of the time. Apart from the occasional raid on traders or cattle ranches, something that needed to be dealt with, the days were, essentially, the same one after another. Thank goodness, then, that the tedium of soldier life was broken by the presence of Nebi's family. Nebi had two children and a wife. Her name was Ta-Useret, a.k.a. the Powerful Lady. The son was named Hor-Em-Heb, a.k.a. Horus in Celebration. The daughter was named meret Hair, or Beloved Visage. So we have the Lord, the Powerful Lady, Horus, and the Beautiful. That is a heck of a roster of names. I honestly don't know which is my favourite. The family of Nebi, Ta-Useret, meret Hair, and Horemheb appear on a small limestone stela, which survives today. This stela was commissioned by the son, Horemheb, in honour of his father Nebi. It shows Nebi and his wife making offerings to the gods, as well as their daughter making offerings to the grandparents. It's sort of a family portrait altogether. What kind of family portrait? Why, the mortuary kind, of course. This stela depicts Nebi and Tauseret making offerings to the great god himself. Osiris, the lord of Abydos, receives their gifts, and presumably looks upon them with favour. 
Such offerings, possibly given at Abydos itself on a pilgrimage, reflect the piety of the family, or at least of Nebi himself. It is a wonderful little monument, testifying to this family's life at the edges of the kingdom. The fortress of Charu was also accompanied by a domestic area. Next to the fort, a settlement grew up between the desert and the farmland. This was a modest town, houses, granaries, farming. Nothing special, but it was home to many people. And remarkably, a great many of these people were not Egyptian. Charu was located in a border zone, between one way of life and another. To the west, the farming lifestyle of the delta, cattle, crops, and riverboats. To the east, the land was dominated by nomads, hunting, tents, and donkeys. Both groups had business in trading or raiding, but this was a frontier area, and Charu was the last, or first, bastion marking the boundary. It was also on the border between different regions, with different ethnicities and cultures coming and going regularly. There were Egyptians of the west, Canaanites and Bedouins of the east. Both came to and through Charu, with the result this city-slash-fortress can be seen as the formal border of Egypt itself. By the mid-18th dynasty, around 1400, Charu was quickly gaining prominence as a fortified centre for trade and for Egyptians to control the frontier. While the port cities in the delta were declining, Charu was rising. It would continue to do so for the next 200 years. So we'll be returning to Charu frequently as we move into the late 18th dynasty and then into the age of the Ramessides. Keep Charu in mind. Nebi and his men returned to Charu, their expedition complete. They were greeted by their comrades, whom, as we've seen, were a cosmopolitan mix of Egyptians and Canaanites. There were also, surprisingly, a large number of Nubians. Back in Nebi's early career, he had served as a fortress commander far to the south, down in the land of Wawat. Wawat is the region that we might today call Northern Sudan. Wawat was a Nubian land, but one dominated by the Egyptians. A string of mighty fortresses controlled this region on behalf of the pharaohs. Nebi commanded one of those fortresses. Which is not so remarkable in itself. I mean, men were always required down in the colonial territories. What is remarkable is that when he left Wawat, Nebi took some of the locals with him. Specifically, he took a battalion of Medjai. One of Nebi's most notable titles is that of Weru en Medjai en Charu, which translates to Chief of the Medjai of the Fortress of Charu. The Medjai, as we know, were once nomads of the southeastern deserts. They were hunters and pastoralists, and they had been coming to Egypt for centuries. Typically, the Egyptians did not trust them, foreigners after all, and they only saw the Magi as valuable when they used them as warriors. Over time, this morphed into a kind of frontier patrol function, and Magi became like sheriffs or police in the desert regions. Nebi of Charu probably commanded a battalion of Medjai who were acting as police for the Sinai Peninsula. With their traditional skills in nomadic lifestyles, the Medjai may have been ideal to patrol the desert. Ironically, they were now guarding against the very lifestyle which they'd once participated in. Their enemies out in the Sinai were not organised states, but Bedouin and nomads. Bedouin and nomads were exactly where the Magi had come from so long before. 
So it seems that in the space of a few generations, the Magi Nubians were transformed from migrants to enforcers. Nebi, and men like him, were part of that process. So Nebi was in command of the fortress of Charu, its inhabitants and its soldiers. This was not his entire life. As we've seen, he had a family who loved him and supported him in many ways. We also know a tiny bit about his religious beliefs. In two collections in Sweden and France, Nebi's canopic jars survive to this day. These are the small earthen vessels designed to hold his internal organs after mummification. They presumably came from his tomb, but that tomb is unfortunately lost. The canopic jars that survive take the shape of a human and a monkey, and they bear short inscriptions testifying to Nebi's hopes for the afterlife. Quote, O Isis, put your arms around that which is inside you. Protect Mseti, who is within you, the mayor of Charu, Nebi, the true of voice. O Nephthys, hide what is inside you. Protect Harpy, who is inside you, the one venerated like Harpy, the mayor of Charu, Nebi, the true of voice. End quote. These little prayers are interesting, because they refer to Nebi as an Mseti and a Harpy. Mseti and Hapi are gods, both of whom are considered sons of the royal god Horus. So it seems like Nebi was making an analogy, comparing himself to the sons of Horus, and therefore, sons of the pharaoh Totmos IV. This is a great little detail, showing how an Egyptian of modest rank might represent themselves in eternity, and tie their immortality directly to the king whom they served. For Nebi, a servant of Pharaoh all his adult life, this kind of prayer was probably quite sincere. If nothing else, these prayers indicate his devotion to the majesty of Horus, and a wish to be included in that divine family. I wonder if it worked. Nebi, lord of the Sinai Desert, died somewhere around 1400 BCE. We're not exactly sure when, as I said, his tomb does not survive. He went to the afterlife in modest style. He could probably afford the necessary equipment, but the burial was probably not lavish, just satisfactory. The tale of Nebi is a small one, and I love that it survives to this day. The fact that it does survive is a testament to something that was happening in Egyptian society, something which we will be exploring over the next few episodes. For the past 100 years or so, the kingdom of Egypt has been riding high on its imperial successes. Wealth and prosperity flowed into the kingdom from abroad, and in the early days, the wealthiest groups like officials, priests, and royalty were enjoying the fruits of that conquest. But Nebi was not elite, he was at best middle class. So the fact that his story survives starts to indicate something big for us. You see, As we come to 1400 BCE, we are entering into what might be called Egypt's Golden Age. This was a time when the prosperity of the kingdom had trickled down far enough that it created an explosion in middle class culture and display. Nebi and people like him are early symptoms of this process. They were not in the top tier, and yet they could afford testimonies or burials that were strong enough and comfortable enough to survive the millennia. In short, there was a change underway. 
Egyptian society was developing to a point that smaller, more personal stories begin to survive in a way rarely seen before. Nebi is a symptom of that. He survives in the archaeological record because the conditions were right for him to do so. So as we leave him to history, the horizon seems brighter for men like him than ever before. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. Before I go, I just wanted to give you an update on the podcast schedule over the next couple of months. The podcast will release a couple more episodes up till about January 17th. I will then take a short holiday, as I take some time to visit friends and family overseas and have a bit of a rest. 2017 was a big year for the podcast, and I'm proud of what you and I have achieved together. The narrative is moving smoothly, and it's even getting a bit ahead of where I had planned. But, after all of this, I am slightly burnt out. So bear with me as I take a bit of a break. I will then return, refreshed and re-energized, in early to mid-February. For now, let's move on to episode 90, and our final mini-episode on the Egyptian calendar. See you soon! is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity? What is this, yoga class? Get out of here! <laughs>